All right. So welcome to the Open Source Startup Podcast, where we talk to founders and leaders in the open source community. I'm Robbie from Cowboy Ventures, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tim of Essence VC. And today we have an awesome guest for you. It's a co-founder and CEO of Evidently AI, which is an open source platform to monitor machine learning models. And Yelena Samulia, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So I gave a very brief overview of what Evidently is, but why don't you just give us more background on how the company started and what you actually do? Evidently is an open source tool that helps you monitor and evaluate machine learning models in production. It actually started from my experience and my co-founder's experience of running machine learning applications for many years. Because we started to work on them even before, you know, like AI became a thing in 2013. Originally, we met at Yandex, which is kind of like Google of Russia. It's a large internet search engine, which used to do machine learning before it was cool, just because it was needed. And at some point, we joined a department focused on applying machine learning to other industries. So we worked a lot on machine learning applications at Yandex and at the startup we co-founded. And we've seen pretty much everything that can go right and wrong with these models. And eventually we decided to build a tool which is focused on helping you monitor how these models operate in the real world and help them basically work reliably. And this is one of the things that we feel kind of intersects in terms of our experience because we approach it from the business side and from the data science side, kind of like both. Talk about your open source, I guess, origin story here. Like, did you start this part of your company or actually you started as a completely independent project? Because it looks at the timeline. It seems it's actually after Yandex, right, that you started this open source project. So what what made you even want to start this uh, after leaving Yandex? Actually, after leaving Yandex, we worked together on a different startup focused on manufacturing. So we were creating applications for like steel makers, oil and gas. So like very heavy industries, helping them optimize industrial production. And part of the inspiration also came from there. But yes, it is a completely independent project. And actually how we started is that me and Emily, my co-founder, we decided to create this new company focused on machine learning tooling. And we were actually pretty open in the beginning to a particular idea. Monitoring was one of them. We also considered explainability and some other topics around that that basically help you work with machine learning in the real world. And when we spoke to, I think, around 50 people at first, so we just reached out and talked to other leaders in the space, data scientists, machine learning engineers, startups, and so on. There was a recurring theme that monitoring is a pain because the day after you put your model in production, there is no right tooling that really helps you to keep track and understand how it is working or not. And when we came up with this idea, we understood that the startup should be open source. So it's kind of a bit of like, rational decision when we understood what we want to build, and then we figured out how we want to bring it to market, what makes sense. And because it is a technical product that is used by machine learning engineers, data scientists, open source's distribution strategy made complete sense. It also was obvious for us that at that point, at least, there was no product on the market that could fill this gap. So we were, we were able to become the first one. And lastly, for us as a team, kind of like made sense because we like working with community. Emily also has a great background in teaching and creating courses, and I also worked with community in the past. So it kind of felt like a great match. It rationally made sense, and it also felt like a good way to build a company. So that's how evidently became open source. But yes, it is kind of created from scratch to be an open source project. And so the data observability space and monitoring for data downtime has quite a few players in it, but we haven't seen a lot in the machine learning monitoring space, but I imagine there are some similarities and some differences. 
Can you talk a bit about what's unique about monitoring machine learning models versus monitoring just standard data models? It does make a lot of sense. So indeed, these two things at least interface because machine learning models are built out of data, right? So in just data from some storage. But it's a slightly different audience and is a kind of different use case, even though there are a lot of similarities. One point is when we talk about data downtime and data monitoring, we usually look at the data assets as a whole, right? So there is a company that has a lot of data assets, data lake, data warehouse, you need to keep tabs on what's going on and so on. And the consumers are usually BI, data analysts, business, data engineers, and so on. When we talk about machine learning monitoring, we talk about specific machine learning products. It can be a single model that the company creates, like, I don't know, demand forecasting model, churn prediction. It can be a product that is built around machine learning if we talk about particular startups like a manufacturing process optimization, like this use case that we worked on. But there you have to monitor the data, of course. You also have to monitor the outcomes of this model. So it kind of like interfaces both ways in terms of like the data that gets in and the real use case. And of course, there are very particular failure modes, which can be different in terms of like data downtime and machine learning underperformance. The data might still be there. It might still be correct and even accurate. But maybe the real world has changed. And now the model operates in an unfamiliar environment. And these sort of things are pretty unique to machine learning. And this is something that we focus on. For example, how to understand that you can still rely on the model predictions, even if the data is completely OK. So can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of open source here and why having an open source tool was something that you thought that the machine learning um, audience would really care a lot about? You know, we spoke to so many machine learning engineers, like how do you check out the products? Like how do you learn what's new? How do you solve the problems that you come up every day? And everyone said open source because when you kind of learn to build models, you start with so many open source tools out there. So just like a no-brainer answer, right? It, it almost felt weird to me that at the moment that we started, our competitors were being closed source because they kind of started going to the enterprise and uh, selling the value to the enterprise users who are the consumers of this product, which of course makes sense, right? Because these are the people who would pay. But if we talk about the adoption, about people who are influencing the decision and people who are actually solving this problem, these are data scientists, machine learning engineers, software engineers who are used to working with the tools, at least as a self-service. Open source is kind of an extreme variation of self-service here. But especially when you work with data, it totally makes sense because you don't have to transfer data elsewhere, at least to check out the product and start working with this. So there are so many pros <laughs> that I can hardly find any cons, except for maybe if you're building the company with this model, you really have to win the open source market. So you kind of just like take a small niche, right? You have to go all in and be, bring really great products out there. So when you started this open source project, since you have an idea you want to do like independent ML tools, and there's so many ways you can start this project and so many ways you can actually talk about this project because we noticed like there's a definitely a rise of, there's actually a huge rise of ML tools. And then actually also in subcategory, there's a rise of ML observability open source tools. And I guess when you notice the details of what people talk about is actually very different. And so what is the approach you took like, because when I look at the, the current project you have, it's very interesting is embedding sort of like dashboards into your notebooks in a way to show you the data. That's sort of like the first and topmost message from a GitHub. What was the choices you make to try to say, this is actually the most important thing you should check out and try? You know, it was a lot of like product decision involved because of course we envisioned a huge platform that can do everything. And then when you cut it down to the MVP and what should be first to market, we decided there's going to be this dashboard that you can look at the notebook. And it was literally a decision kind of MVP focused, right? So we do not intend that this is the main way how you use the products in production. And there are actually other ways, but you can 
we feel that it's a great way to onboard users. And I think we were pretty right in that because there are so many projects that are so sophisticated. It's so hard to even understand what exactly they do. So this ability to check it out with a couple of lines of code in the existing tools that you already use. And we served people, we understood that they still use notebooks. Even there is a huge discussion of whether you should use them in production or not. They are there, people are using them, right? So we wanted to kind of meet them where they are. And there is this wow factor that we hear from people when they first test the tool. Like, it's very nice, of course, right? So they were interactive. You want to share them with the team. You want to share them to others. So we thought it's a great way how we can onboard these users. Of course, there's huge complexity at the next stage, right? When integrating this in the real production pipelines, getting alerting right, figuring out the statistical tests you apply and so on. And that's what we're gradually building over it. But yes, the decision about the MVP kind of came from understanding how we want our users to learn about us and just test us at the very least. Yeah, and like you mentioned earlier, before you even started building, it sounds like you talked to a lot of potential users. Who did you talk to? Like, what kind of profiles of folks? Because I imagine that depending on the types of models that you're running or the size of them or the industry, they could be slightly different, especially when it comes to where there's going to potentially be downtime. So Mm -hmm. how did you figure out who to talk to and how has that actually played into who is now using the project? It was actually a fun point because we started working on this product in the beginning of COVID. So literally everyone was at home, everyone was on LinkedIn. So it was a very fruitful moment to reach out to people just to chat. And I was just like reaching out to people I know, people I don't know on LinkedIn, on different forums to kind of understand who they are, what they want to do. And at first we were like not too selective because we were open to understand at the very least who have model in production, like which companies has models in production, what are their concerns? And what we found out, at least at that point, which was already two years ago now, was that it's more kind of the maturity of the company that matters than a particular industry, because you might see companies in the same industry that have zero models in production and they have 100 models in production. It is kind of evening out now a little bit because people are maturing, right? They're building new teams. But that was a little bit kind of more important for us to understand at which stage they are to actually experience this problem, right? And most of the people who experience these problems at first, it's just kind of articulating it. Hey, I actually have to track these things, and this is not exactly obvious how to do this. So this was the type of users that we are trying to talk to. Industry-wise, there are a few kind of like learnings. One was, of course, that there are some regulated industries like finance and healthcare. First of all, they already have a huge kind of experience in monitoring models and validating models even before machine learning became a thing, right? Talk about credit scoring and so on, or like FDA approvals for some medical devices. And these are probably not the industries that we focus on, even though we have some users from them. So we kind of understood that we want to be more horizontal and focus on the shared use cases that everyone might have. And talking about the users now, we're still in the early days, right? So we're still in the open source phase. There is no commercial product yet, and it actually takes some work to deploy us in production. So the users that we have are more early adopters, adventurous people who like to play with open source. Usually these are the teams that have enough engineering capacity to play with it because it's not like a self-service product that you can completely plug in. So I think we're still in the journey to actually get back to these people that we initially spoke to and that we intend to serve. But it was, I think, a very interesting exercise in shaping the early community too. Because a lot of people I spoke with, they are now like our community members. They might not be even using the tool, but they're cheering for us. And I think that's a very interesting thing about uh, building an open source company. So now you have about like 2.3,000 like uh, GitHub stars and you have a growing community. With last two years of running this, what, what, what has been the biggest learning for you trying to grow a community from scratch? Because I think you don't have like some existing community you took over or it's really from looking at your blog posts and looking at GitHub, this everything is completely from a blank sheet of paper. What would you actually try first? And what did you learn from some of the experiments that really gave you like more meaningful growth? 
Mm-hmm. You know, we went all in on content. And I cannot say that this is, you know, something that I would advise to everyone. I think you have need to have some inclination to do this because it actually takes so much time. But if you create great content, I'm not just meaning the blogs, for example, also tutorials and examples, which is very important for open source tool, right? You just want to be able to launch it quickly to understand how it works and so on. I think like investing in these blogs and documentation is super important. And this is what we have seen work. Also, like even for the SEO, like, you know, our documentation works as a tool that eventually like brings people to try out evidently. And this is something that I want to further pursue. It's getting harder when you want to do it at scale. But as a like early stage founder, I would definitely recommend checking out content of all sorts. It's also going to give some tutorials, some meetups, maybe speak at some conferences. Just today, my co-founder was giving a presentation at PyData in Berlin virtually. So these sort of things seem to be very important in the early days because you want to get like pointed, directed users who are seeking to solve this exact problem, right? So they will be ready to play with the tool that I have baked and want to just test it out. It's not yet about like white coverage and like uh, building a flywheel. I think it's about like gaining these early adopters who are very interesting to test out the tool and somehow capturing them. So this is a bit of a challenge with open source, right? You don't have like a user that's the registers that you can further like follow along. So you have to capture them somehow, have them join the community. That's why we have a Discord server because that's one of the ways we do this. So yeah, content was a big thing and uh, I would definitely suggest to other founders to also check this as a potential flywheel. And what are some of the details around how you've actually thought about what content to write about? Because some of it is very specific to Evidently. And then there's quite a bit of content that's more industry-wide questions about um, monitoring in general. So what's your process for figuring out what's important to write about and what will resonate with the community? It was twofold. Even before we kind of released Evidently, we started writing blogs. So one part was what we've heard users asking potential users, I mean, right, the people we spoke to, like what they asked during the calls, like what was uh, their interest. And a lot of this was just pretty basic, right? So we wrote this blog, for example, what is data drift and what is concept drift. Now, like uh, there are like maybe hundreds of blogs on this topic, but ours was among the first. It was a very well regarded, like Andrew Eng linked to this blog in one of his course. And these things worked really great, right? So that was just because no one else yet wrote about this well enough. And the second part was uh, I, as a non-technical founder, was actually learning to understand how things work. And it was a bit of like my own learning journey, which I think is a great way of presenting uh, content in a digestible manner, because I'm not a data scientist, right? So I had to explain things the way I would understand them. So it's kind of was a, a lot of work with my co-founder, Emily. And I mean, I can only praise her that highly for how she explains things to me that I am able to convey them to the technical audiences. But it was a lot about just learning ourselves about the problem and then answering the questions that we've heard. And then, of course, this builds up. So some of the questions that users ask in Discord or open issues on are kind of inspiring the next blocks and I have a huge backlog of things that I want to write about now. On SEO, have you actually invested in anything there? Because when you look at machine learning model monitoring, you guys actually come up pretty high on a lot of different variations of that search. Was that a conscious effort or you're just putting a lot of content out there with a lot of the good keywords and that's just kind of been a byproduct of it? I was not too intentional, but I knew that search engines actually praise good long content. I thought I will just like write good long content and I did not try to see optimize it. I mean, I'm aware of this, so maybe I did apply some techniques, but we did not do like any real SEO research or like try to optimize it for keywords. We were maybe optimizing it a little bit for like social sharing, I would say, because we try to like write content, which I believe people will find interesting and would be eager to share because like we have great visuals, so like nice explanations of something. So one thing I noticed actually going to your website first right away is your tagline. Monitoring is boring. We talked to so many open source companies, you know, they all put different personalities in play 
from the message you have and sort of the content you have, what is the intentions around sort of the design and the message you put up there? What are you trying to convey and to who? What is the sort of things you're hoping to get resonance with? When you say, hey, monitoring is boring, you know, we're trying to, I guess you're saying we can cover a lot of things for you. What is the sort of intentions around the message? You know, again, like being a small startup, we haven't done like, you know, like brand messaging, like workshop to try to figure out what we want to do. So it's kind of like it works as it is based on, I think, personalities of the founders. So we're not too intentional about that just yet. But what we want to do is, you know, we're truly passionate about solving some boring problems. And I think it is visible, right? So we write these blogs and uh, I find joy in writing blogs about data-driven monitoring, right? And you can see it. It's not just like something that you write to, to have it written out and put out there, like without uh, like any interest. So this is something that I think people can notice. So we're really passionate in helping people to solve this problem. And we're also interested in learning from people. So we try to kind of keep it very conversational. And we are very open to what others comment on our blogs, you know, if they agree or disagree. We really welcome when people come to our Discord channel and suggest like to do some improvements to our product. And I think this is very genuine from our side. So that's how we see us learning about the problem we are solving and finding best ways to solve it right. So we try to be like fun, conversational, engaging. I think, you know, when the company becomes enterprise startup, you have to kind of leave it outside because you have you're selling now to different audience right you have very different websites with very different messaging but at this stage we can take advantage and be this kind of very approachable startup we also talk to many of our users and you know like oh i message many of our users personally and i think people are usually surprised when the ceo and the founder of a startup like writes them hey like you open this issue will you be willing to chat with us and like share more about what you're solving and i'm happy that we can still do it <laughs> right we're still small enough to be able to give this uh, kind of personal attention to our users. I think, yeah, these these things, they kind of shape our vision about how to work with community and content is part of it. So we want to ask a bit about community and what some of your strategies and learnings have been trying to build a community in Discord. And I actually would love to hear why you chose Discord versus Slack, because we see folks using both. And also who you actually referenced or learned from on how to properly build out a Discord community, like what channels you should have to what kind of activity you want to see to know that it's healthy? Like, where did you actually learn and how have you been iterating on that? Well, uh, answer the first question, why Discord? Because, well, it keeps the history, right? I think this idea of like not retaining the history Slack is clearly not going after community management, right? So they they have a different audience. So it felt like Discord is the tool that is gaining traction. And we saw a newer project starting on Discord as opposed to older projects having their Slack channels. So we just made a call, we go with Discord. Also, I hate to register for every new Slack I joined. Seriously, I'm in like 50 Slacks. <laughs> and how we kept track of all these communities that are out there is I can, to get inspiration to like understand how others work. I actually joined a lot of communities and I was pretty active participant in some of them. So uh, I was observing what works and what doesn't. And I think there are things that are like visible, right? So if you do something genuinely, so you really want people to learn, to get value from the community, it can be seen as opposed to some communities which are very brand-focused, you know, like uh, they close off conversations, they're off-topic, they try to push their product too much and so on. And I saw success in communities where people were genuinely trying to create some learning environment for others. And this is what we hope to build, right? So we are now working to create some more content, some events in our community, which are not directly related to Evidently, more about just general best practices, machine learning operations, and so on. And we're pretty serious about it. We're actually six people team and the person number six that has just joined us 12 days ago as a community manager. 
because exactly we want to invest in this and uh, kind of help us scale what we have been doing as founders before. Maybe talk a bit more, because I want to go back maybe into the product a little bit. We started with the dashboard is where we want people to actually just start. And I think what I noticed about ML observability is that everyone's product actually looks quite different, which is actually fairly interesting. If you have a monitoring company, you see a couple differences, but in somehow an ML space, it looks very different, right? Just picking some examples, Y Labs are doing a lot of like logging stuff and what you're doing. You can definitely see like there's some conscious choices, not just when it comes to like what you show, but also like how, what do you actually capture and what particular methods are you using, choosing to capture some of the drifting or quality measurements? So I guess I'm, I'm just curious how you got into this variance here, you know, this, this particular feature sets when it comes to like model profiling, because I'm sure there's also choices. Do you want to do inference related? Do you want to training related? Do you do pipelines? What do you actually capture? What was the sort of like persona in your head that, okay, we want to go after this kind of data scientist with this kind of trainings. And there's any reason why you picked that in mm-hmm. the first place? Well, you're absolutely right that this market is a wild west and everyone is just figuring it out. So once again, being open source, we have an advantage that we can try to build out the core pieces of our product without like yet converging to like a design that will be like the the end goal. And I think like here we, we truly have an advantage. So we started to build out things which we believed were like the most important ones and the ones that are missing. So for example, building dashboards by itself, right? It's a pretty generic name. So that's why, for example, we integrate with Grafana and you can see the metrics that we calculate being displayed in Grafana. Or we calculate metrics and then you can run this using your existing workflow manager, for example, Airflow. And this feeds into other workflows. So we, when we were making the design choices, we were trying to identify what is like the missing piece, right? And start building it and then basically expanding and adding the additional features. But of course, even at this point, there are design choices to be made. And this is usually, I think, again, it's guided probably by the background of the founders, right? So what you're working on. We're working on a large e-commerce website, which definitely has different problems from a churn prediction model in telecom or industrial production. So we were kind of converging to a design that was based on our experience and on many of the teams that we spoke with that we could understand well. For example, having batch models that are maybe not served in real time, but uh, you're just running some prediction once per day, once per hour, maybe once per week, is one of the examples that we saw. We also saw that so many teams have models that have actually small data. So you don't really have like super large data size. I mean, of course, when we talk about the leaders of the field, they all have these exciting use cases and these ML platforms that need to maintain like super high workloads. But in reality, often you have like some small data set moving here and there that your marketing team will be looking at to send uh, emails to your base, right? So we're thinking about these use cases that we knew of, that we understood well, so we didn't have to completely learn them from scratch, right? And also that were kind of easier to build because starting with batch, you start like with the less needs than thinking about like real-time serving for like higher scale. So these were the decisions that we made. Of course, when we talk about data types, this is also a very important thing. So there are companies that are working, for example, in computer vision, which I truly believe a very different workflow at all steps of the process, right? Usually nothing changes that fast in computer vision, but at the same time, you have a lot of edge cases that you have to focus on. That's a very different workflow from tracking the behavior of your users in an application or something like this. So yeah, we kind of started from tabular data and more batch models. Some other companies started from other use cases or maybe from regulated industries where the workflow is around model governments and approvals more than it is about data drift detection. And I know you haven't started thinking about what you're going to charge for on the product yet, but as far as just formulating what type of business model you might go after, has that been something that 
you've been actively thinking about or you want to get to a certain level of community engagement or just community growth, and then you'll start thinking about that. Of course, we are thinking about this, but it is still like in the process of refinement. And there are like kind of two parts of this story. First is we definitely want to go all in on open source. We've seen other companies that execute this successfully, right? I'm talking from like Mongo to even Grafana that I've already mentioned. So when you have a really valuable product in the open source, there are some companies that are taking a different approach when open source is basically like a lead generation for the commercial product, which is totally fine, right? So it's just a different strategy. We want to be the ones that actually build a very useful product where most of the value is out there and engineers can get it and use it and so uh, even without paying us, because it will build us the foundation to actually monetize. The second idea is that we might not yet decide on a particular features, feature set that we will monetize on. But what we see is that there are two types of audiences that we have. There are these data scientists and machine learning engineers. And then there are the business leaders who are the ones interested in the models working in the real world. And there is a particular feature set that these business users might need. And of course, they're not using Jupyter Notebooks or something else. So we're thinking about like making this delineation between what is for data scientists and what is for business user to kind of inform our choices. And of course, frankly, just the whole point of running open source, we all know, I mean, you spoke to all these companies, right? Running open source is not free. All this provisioning and scaling and just basically hosting it. So of course, the first easy decision is just to put this thing on the cloud, right? And manage the service for others. I think it's a kind of no-brainer strategy for most of the open source companies out there, but we plan to experiment with both. And the space is still very early, and you can almost see in the like data observability space, it's more mature to a point where there's players that have kind of picked their area, like planted their flag and are partnering with other players. Have you started thinking about how the space is going to evolve and where you're not going to go and where there might be like partnership opportunities with other ML I don't know if they'd be directly like ML observability companies, but just taking like slightly different takes on the problem where you could kind of help build an entire ML observability stack with others in the ecosystem. Actually, see complementarity with the data observability stack because we're kind of like interfacing in each other, right, without directly competing. So I think down the line, this is one of the things that we will definitely look at. In terms of ML tooling, frankly, it is so confusing right now because almost every ML tool you look at they start doing something different in the next months. So they go left to right in the kind of machine learning pipeline or they add additional capabilities. So it's yet to be defined, like whom we will partner with. But there are a couple of kind of tool chains that we see we fit in well. So all the workflow manager tools that basically want to connect the steps and how you build the model and then you train it and update it. Right? This is something that we are not solving, but we integrate well in. So we already have a few integrations out there. So we're kind of more looking to integrate with these complementary tools in the stack. And also, of course, all the other tools, like from data storage to different dashboarding tools. But I do not see kind of direct complementarity right now with the other machine learning observability tools. But again, we're all just figuring it all out, to be frank. So I think if you keep track of most of these companies, they update their websites pretty often <laughs> because the positioning changes, the feature set changes. So yeah, that's uh, a lot to be defined yet. Yeah, like I said, this, this space is so early, right? There's actually always feel like there's a new ML company every week. I think what's interesting, what to ask you about is how your strategy of growing your community sort of changes over time, because like content was the biggest thing. But I noticed maybe just observing your community channels, you started to do more other collaborations, I guess, either content-wise or actually getting evidently into other open source projects that they're leveraging as well. And did you try to make those connections in the first place? Like you reach out a bunch of other machine learning libraries, say, hey, I'm a new way to generate a dashboard, please use me. 
Or was it they just found you somehow? And I'm just very curious, like, what is more intentional <laughs> from you? And what is just like, I'm just getting my name out there and we'll figure out what happens. You know, that is all inbound. And I think that's exactly intentional, right? So we try to put ourselves out there and then kind of see what sticks, right? Who are the people coming? Who are the people using? Who are the projects interested in? There were a couple of integrations that we learned because people made the integration and posted about it. And then we saw like some traffic and then hmm, we're now integrated with this other tool. I mean, that's fun. That really feels very good, right? Someone found this thing, they found it valuable and they decided to integrate even without talking to you. But no, we did not intentionally reach out to integrate with other tools yet, mostly because we're still doing some changes in our API. So maintaining this integration will be slightly painful, but in a couple of months, we will have the stable version. So that's uh, going to be a bit easier. So it is intentional, but uh, talking about the learnings of how we build the community, I think that is it. So we tried to create some initial momentum, right? To kind of reach out to a wide audience, to put the content, to see like where we can be presented and so on. And then we started to talk more deeply with the users who are coming or who are using us, especially like people who are opening issues, right? I'm still surprised how many people are writing emails because probably they don't like to put issues publicly. So they just like write a message you describing their issue. And this is what we're learning now most because these are the users, right? So these are the people who are taking the effort of using an early open source project because they have the pain that is uh, enough to go through all the hoops, right? So we kind of like started first with more general outreach. Then we started to work more closely with individual users. And I think at the next stage, we will kind of like update the product based on these learnings. And again, we'll go out and like talk to wider audience. So it's kind of like a step by step. Part of this sort of community exploration and sort of product exploration, like I'm looking up from a website, seems like the next thing coming up is like a ML real-time monitoring, like your Grafana dashboards and able to actually capture metrics and see it as like a live monitoring tool. I'm just curious, like obviously there's probably a couple of choices you can make. One is actually just make one part of the monitoring more sort of deeper, like integrate with more frameworks, have a lot more different methods, right? You can just do one little piece of the monitoring pipeline thing in a much more richer way. Or go a little bit more broader and try to capture, you know, real time, little pipelines, little trainings, right? There's many, many, many ways you can actually prioritize a roadmap. I'm very just curious, like what made you made the choice to go a little bit broader first? It seems like your strategy at the moment is covering a more end-to-end basis and then go deeper from that. And did you see that as a way to hopefully capture more early users and they can just use evidently for everything? What do you hear from the community that made you prioritize mm-hmm. Roma this way? You know, because the tool is basically an evaluation tool, right? So we use it for monitoring, but in the end, it basically helps you to get a snapshot of how the model is working. We saw users starting to use it also at different steps of the lifecycle. That was actually one of the learnings. People use it even before they build the model to understand the changes in the data using historical data, which is kind of fun, right? And we saw these users out there that are already using us, so we kind of cover their needs as well, because we expect them to become evidently users once they put these models into production. And frankly, these days, it's not that long. I mean, gone are the days when it took you six months to create a model, right? Sometimes you train the model in a matter of weeks, and most of the time you just spend uh, preparing the data. So yes, we kind of figured out that there is this segment, and we decided that we also want to serve their needs because we expect them to be the users it will eventually convert for the monitoring part as well. And it kind of works for us as a way to engage with this earlier stage audience. On the other side, I would not say we are too unfocused because we're still only focusing on the tabular data, right? And we're just trying to fit into different workflows of how people deploy models. Unfortunately, there is some variety, right? You have batch models, you have real-time models, you integrate with slightly different tools. Sometimes people 
retrain the model. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't check the models after they retrain and so on, which is frustrating and surprising, but people do this. And so we understood that with really minor modifications, we can cover these different workflows. And monitoring is in the way just like a continuous testing or continuous model evaluation, right? So that's how we started to look at us in a bit of a broader sense. But again, still only tabular models, tabular data. There are quite a few limitations that we kind of keep in check. Awesome. And we also wanted to talk a bit about your fundraising journey so far and your YC company. One of the benefits we hear from a lot of companies that go through YC are being able to sell or get user research from the rest of the batch as potential customers. What, as an open source company, did you see as the major benefits to YC? And do you think that there's going to be, there like is a good history of open source based companies in YC, but do you see that being kind of a core focus? You know, I think YC these days is what you make of it, right? So you're building your own curriculum, let's say you're building the people that you talk to, you reach out and so on. And the value I saw was actually meeting a lot of open source companies, not necessarily now a batch, but most helpful, I think, were the ones that were like one or two batches before us that they could share what investors expect from open source, right? Their learnings and how they launched and like experimented with different growth hacks and so on. And this was for me the most valuable thing. So I actually reached out to many other open source founders. And actually some of them were your previous speakers in the podcast. Like for example, James from PostHoc. I think we spoke to him even before we got interviewed by YC because I reached out. So these are sort of the things that I find most valuable. And I think this is the way how I would recommend any founder to approach it, right? So you need to find people who are one, two steps ahead of you. I mean, not necessarily someone like Docker, right? They're just like too far along or GitLab. I mean, they can be inspirational, but they already like a few stages removed. But I think talking to these kind of peers that are a few steps ahead is the best learning for me. And that's how we try to utilize being in YC. So one thing we learned, just like the talking to other YC founders in our podcast before, there definitely seems to be an open source community within YC of founders exchanging information and and you talk about talking to a few. What did you learn? What was the education or what things that you learned from them that really made you go faster, I guess, growing this community? You know, I think one part is just the mindset, right? Because it's very important to see and reinforce the belief that you can build a successful open source company, right? To see others doing it. And I would not, uh, you know, discount this. This is very important because you, you always have to get a second guess you, you know, double check that what you're doing is right. So this is a very important. Another part is really like direct uh, metrics that uh, you would want to optimize, right? Maybe particular, like how to do a launch, uh, how to do a launch week, right? So this is one of the things that uh, Superbase did and I think some other founders are now doing, right? So like just basically some tactics and also understanding uh, fundraising strategies, understanding uh, how to work with your users, making certain decisions as in like, do you need to have support agents, right? Or should your engineers do support? So like, it's always good to have a sounding board of people that you can ask similar questions that will answer from the right context. Because you can just, you know, throw this question out there on Twitter and there will be all sorts of founders doing B2B enterprise self-service, right? Different go-to-market motions and their insights would be different. So it's very nice to be able to get this input from the founders in a, in a similar state. Actually, you brought a very interesting tactic, like launch week. I definitely seen Superbase did it. We haven't never talked about on our podcast before. So maybe give us a little bit of insights. What is a launch week? You know, how is it different than just a launch? What do you do? I haven't done that before. It's something that's on my mind, right? So we basically can batch several launches and create a bigger event out of it. I think it's one of the problems that we all have with our attention span. There are so many things out there that's so hard to stand out. 
right? Doing like one big announcement, we are YC companies by itself, the growth hack, right? Then doing like, hey, we launched a product hunt is another hack, right? So that's all YC companies do. But then basically when YC finishes or like when you raise your first round of funding or something, it's what else are you going to announce on, right? So you try to create some different ways of creating momentum and use, which people will be interested in. I think like enterprise companies do conferences all the time, right? <laughs> but it's also getting old. So maybe open source companies can have their own ways of how you build it. Frankly, I, we have not done that yet, so I cannot speak from personal experience. But we keep thinking about uh, things like this, like maybe an educational course, right? A launch week, community calls. This is another thing that everyone is doing. We also check it out, right? And this is not in your typical enterprise playbook. One of the last questions from us, what were some of the biggest learnings? And I, I know you learn a lot from other open source-based founders, but just for you personally and on your journey, what are some things that you wish you could tell yourself when you were first starting out, maybe pre-launch week? that you just have learned over the last couple of years? I think launch faster. <laughs> so like this, the, the usual one, right? But being open source, you can get feedback fast. And this is the awesome advantage of having this feedback loop, right? So launch fast and not be afraid to put out things that are not yet working. I sometimes joke that when if we break something, actually that's the way how we learn who's actually using us. So maybe sometimes we should do this intentionally. No, we don't do this, but <laughs> that's like one of the ways you can succeed is by releasing more and getting this feedback faster, right? And iterating on it. And being an open source founder, you can generate this loop by putting even the product that doesn't work that well. So I would suggest to maybe do it, do it more and do it faster. But it is always hard, you know, have like inner perfectionist. And especially when your code is out there, when your content is out there, you have high standards. But yeah, that's the learning that uh, I would definitely tell myself. Awesome. Well, this was really great. Thank you so much for joining us. It was awesome. Thank you for having me.